Revelation chapter 12, we'll commence reading in verse 1. Let's all hear God's word. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. There appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should flee, feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon And the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. We'll end our reading in verse 11, trusting God to bless it for his own namesake. Would you bow your head with me just for a moment? Let's seek the Lord together. Loving Father in heaven, we pause to seek thee for all the help that is needed in delivering thy word and in receiving it. We pray for the gracious power of the Spirit of God to rest upon us, giving us that divine enabling to rightly handle the word of truth and to receive the engrafted word with meekness. Grant to us this day that clear understanding of what we're about in this world with the great enemy to our souls, what we are dealing with on a daily basis. And in that knowledge, we pray, it will be a means of equipping us to resist him. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen and amen. The more you read and study the book of Revelation, the more you can see why John Calvin, along with many other eminent divines, never attempted to write a commentary on this last book of Scripture. 
You could easily apply Peter's comments uh, describing some of Paul's writings to the book of Revelation. He said of Paul's writings, some things hard to be understood. That's very true of Revelation. Some things hard to be understood. The passage we've just read is a case in point. How you interpret the timing of the events that we read about in chapter 12 depends on which one of the three major views you take in interpreting the book of Revelation. So, if you are a preterist, then you believe that the prophecies in Revelation were all fulfilled with the destruction of Jerusalem Jerusalem in 70 AD and the eventual fall of the Roman Empire. That's the preterist view. If, on the other hand, you are an historicist, you interpret Revelation's prophecies as symbolic of the progressive history of the church from the first century A.D. until the end of time. If you are a futurist, the third view, you believe that the prophecies from chapter 4 to the end of the book are for a time that is still future. From chapter 4 onwards, it's a time that's still future. One to three have happened. Four is ongoing from the future. That is not to say that the futurist doesn't see any references to the history of the church in the last 18 chapters, but that the main emphasis of these prophecies deal with events that are yet to take place. So therefore, you can really see that coming to a clear, undeniable, irrefutable understanding of the events in the chapter before us just now can get rather confusing no matter which one of those three views you take. There's difficulties for every position. Therefore, you can see also why it's not my aim to give to you a verse-by-verse exposition of Revelation chapter 12. If Calvin couldn't get it, this John can't get it either. I'm very glad that the opening chapter of the book that we read this morning says... Blessed are those that read and hear and keep the words of this book. Because if the blessing is confined only to those who understand it all, then we're in bad shape. But what can we understand from this passage, in spite of all the difficulties of interpreting Revelation? For one thing, it is clear that Satan... And his angels fight against God. That's the no-brainer. In other words, there has been, now is, and till the end of time, a war that is taking place in the spiritual, invisible world that surrounds us. We don't see them. They're invisible creatures. But there's a war that's going on above our heads all around us. We are blind to because we haven't been given this sight to see that. But it's going on. 
It would be amazing if God, as he did one time in the Old Testament, just lifted the veil and let us see actually what's taking place around in this sanctuary right now with angels, good and evil. It's ongoing. It's always there. If he would lift our eyes to see in our homes the things that are going on, angels, bitterly, good or evil, at work in this warfare, we would be shocked out of our minds. Hebrews 1.14 tells us that all the angels of God are ministering spirits, ministering spirits sent forth to minister, to serve, to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. That's what they're doing, serving Christ's people. And yet we also read in Luke 11 that uh, event where Christ speaks of the strong man armed he doesn't want his palace, his goods spoiled. He does everything he can to keep that lost sinner bound in his prison house. So we, we, we know that these uh, demons, these devils, keep the souls of men in spiritual darkness and thus resist the advancing of the kingdom of God. And you know well that Peter tells us the devil is like a roaring lion roaming about seeking whom he may Devour, looking to devour the souls of men, looking to wreak carnage whenever he can, spiritual carnage at every opportunity. Daniel 10, we read that Daniel had set himself to prayer and fasting when he understood by the reading of Jeremiah that the 70 year captivity of Israel in Babylon was coming to an end. He understood that. He got it. And he set himself to seek the face of God. It was a promise. It was after 70 years, they'll be released. You'll go back home again. And he doesn't just say, well, you know, it's going to happen. No, I, he set himself to prayer and fasting for that to happen. An angel appears to him in a vision and tells Daniel that he had been sent by God to, as an answer to his prayer. And he would have been there sooner. But another angel of the devil withstood him for 21 days. And it took Michael, the archangel, to come and help him to overcome. Whoever that demon was, he was fighting. Constant warfare, spiritual warfare taking place all around us. But this passage goes on to show that not only has there been warfare between God's angels and Satan angels, but there has been a raging battle between Satan and the people of God. And so Paul states, does he not, in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And that word wrestle is hand-to-hand compact, hand-to-hand, close-up encounters. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, literally in the original, wicked spirits. We wrestle against wicked spirits in high places, literally in the heavenlies. That's what it's saying. We are wrestling so to speak, spiritual warfare, hand-to-hand combat with wicked spirits in the heavenlies. 
The word Satan, of course, means adversary. Adversary. And it's about this, this battle with, with the devil and believers that I want to say a few things about this morning and conclude, the Lord willing, next Lord's Day morning. This, this war. To walk through this world with Christ is to make yourself an enemy of Satan. As a follower of Christ, you no doubt have felt to some degree the rage of Satan as he has fought you every day. He has fought you every moment of every hour and on every front. He has sought to devour you, to drive you from Christ, to compel you to quit following the Lord. He has sought to weaken your faith, if not to destroy it. He has sought to kill your hope that you would give it all up. That's what he's after. Make no mistake about it. But here you are, after how many years of the constant barrage of the fiery darts, of the attacks of the devil, in spite of all the slanders and accusations he's brought against you, every effort he's made to defeat you, to drive you away from Jesus Christ, here you are to this hour still going on with God. Still. Oh, you've had your ups and downs. You've had moments of victories and you've had times of failures. You've backslidden, but you've been restored. You've grown prayerless, but you've had that prayer life refreshed. You've gotten in places where you felt like there's no faith at all in you and your heart is as hard as a rock. But then something happened. The preacher preached a sermon that was just what you needed to hear. There's something you read in Scripture. It just stood out and you knew the Lord was talking to you. And you've revived and you've gone on. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing grace? Tis grace hath led us safe thus far. And grace will lead us home. My text this morning declares that the Lord's people will never be overcome by Satan, but they will see him cast into the lake of fire, never to trouble the Lord's people again. And at that time it will be said of us in verse 12, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. From that well-known verse, I want to speak this morning and next Lord's Day morning on overcoming our adversary, the devil. Because that's what it's about. That's what it's about. They overcame him. He did not overcome them. They overcame him. Him. It's a fact. It's not a lie. It's not make believe. 
It's how it's going to play out. We shall overcome and actually be more than overcomers through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8. Since one of the fundamental elements of warfare is knowing your enemy, that's the only thing I'm going to deal with this morning. We'll get next week to knowing the captain. Today, it's knowing the enemy. So, I want to look at, this is my only thought, it'll be point one if you're taking notes, the description of our adversary the description of our adversary. And they overcame him. Who's the him? Well, the him refers back to Satan, who is described in verse 3 as a great red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns. He's called the dragon also in verse 4, verse 7, and verse 9. The word here, dragon, as far as the New Testament is concerned, only occurs in the book of Revelation. Nowhere else in the New Testament does this word occur. And it's always the same Greek word, dracon, dragon. A dragon, as we're going to see, symbolizes something or someone that is very powerful, very aggressive, very deadly. Therefore, the one we are going to overcome, the one we have been overcoming all our Christian life, in spite of his every effort to overcome us, blessed be the name of Jesus, the one we are still overcoming. Note first, he is a strong enemy. He is a strong enemy. In verses 4 and 9, he's called a great dragon. The word great, you know the word. You are all little Greek scholars. I'm not. But you know the word, mega, mega, great, large, humongous. That's the word, great dragon, gigantic. In the same breath, he's called that old serpent, tying this great dragon with that old serpent, dragon and serpent being linked together. In the Old Testament, you will read of Egypt and Pharaoh, those very mighty uh, military and political oppositions to Israel being described as a serpent and Leviathan. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. So, the dragon, Leviathan, the serpent, all grouped together. So this serpent and Leviathan appear to be the same animal. Whatever the animal was, you, you, obviously there was something. A lot has been added, you know, through superstitions and folklore and make-believe, but there had to have been 
something, a gigantic serpent of some kind, to even make any sense when you come to read that portion of Scripture, right? Something had to be in mind. In Job 41, God, you remember, he's pulling up Job for his misconduct, asking all these questions, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And he brings up in chapter 41, Leviathan, this, the same dragon, this serpent. He describes Leviathan as some kind of semi-marine, fire-breathing, clad in an armor of hard scales, quote, esteeming iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. By the way, there was no brass in the Old Testament. That word is really bronze. Brass came later, but that's how they translated the word. It's bronze. Still, brass as rotten wood, counting darts as stubble, and laughing at the shaking of a spear. In other words, Leviathan fearless. Not afraid of man. When Jeremiah describes the destroying power of Babylon, he says, Jeremiah 51, verse 34, He hath swallowed me up like a dragon. I don't think it's a crocodile. The fine commentators say this is a crocodile. Not when you have God linking Leviathan. Can't be a crocodile. I don't think the creature exists anymore, but it was ferocious. Whatever this creature was, then we can all conjecture, but the point Scripture makes in it is that all that the serpent, that, that, that Leviathan, the dragon, ultimately symbolizes is Satan and that he is a very powerful adversary. He's very strong. So Luther would write, on earth is not his equal. Now, in what way is his power manifested in this passage? The greatness of his power. He has, in the first place, great power to deceive. The master of deception. The master. Verse 9, he deceiveth the whole world. Can I do a sidebar here for a moment? How in this world can you explain the picture of a woman who is pregnant surely nine months and she says, I am a man and you can't tell me anything different. How do you explain the wokeness that has come like a flood into this land and throughout the world, apart from the power of the enemy to deceive? How do you explain that? That denying biological males and females. Just identify with who you want to be, and that's what you are. We're talking about this is insanity, but it's believed. 
We're talking about deception on a scale that is unimaginable. That's where we're living right now in the world. That is why lawlessness is abounding, as Jesus said in Matthew 24. Lawlessness, anarchy, complete, it is deception. The devil has tremendous power to deceive. With those powers of deception, he was able to convince a third of God's angels in heaven that they could overtake their creator and cast him out. These were sinless angels. They weren't fallen. They didn't have fallen minds, understanding. Yet Satan had the power to deceive them. We can do this. We can overcome Jehovah. We're going to defeat the other two-thirds of the angels and their maker. And they bought into it. Hook, line, and sinker. That's tremendous power. He deceived Eve into believing the biggest lie that has ever been foisted upon mankind. You're not going to die. Ever since that time, he has had tremendous success in deluding the minds of men into believing, I mean, strange things. Like, there's no hell to shun or heaven to gain. That's a load of malarkey. You die and that's it. As the daredevil said, the guy went over the Niagara Falls in a barrel. Some years later, he had that barrel and it was falling in some football stadium down to a large swimming pool. He told the reporters, how do you, how do, you do that? You take your life and chance. Well, he said, you die and that's it. That was his response to the reporters. You die and that's it. Well, several years later, he's on this high platform in this barrel and they push him off. And you know what? The barrel hit the rim of the pool, killed him. Now he knows it's not that you just die and that's it. But he believed it. There's no hell. There's no heaven. There's no price to pay for sin. There's no consequences. You can have, you have nothing to lose if you reject the Bible, if you reject God's Son, Jesus Christ, as the only Savior. You have nothing to lose. The world is the only hell that men will know. In fact, there's no God. Revelation 19 tells us in this same epistle that it is Satan working through the instrumentality of the beast and the false prophet that deceived them, that received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. I know, everyone would like to know, what is the mark of the beast all about? 
What is that uh, 666 number? And what about the forehead and the hand and all kinds of conjectures? But let the conjectures conjecture. I just know there's going to be something that's going to be some kind of a mark. And he will deceive them to receiving it. Satan is called the old serpent, which indicates that he has had a long time at honing his skills at deception. He has a brilliant mind. Brilliant. It's just wickedly brilliant. Brilliant in evil things. After thousands of years of constant daily practice in deception and in reading people and learning about people. He's become the par excellence at deceiving. Tell you he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than your spouse, than your children, your mother and your father. And he knows how to deceive. Satan was very cunning when he came to Eve with his lies about God, about his word, and about her, and about Adam. Paul told the Corinthians that the devil beguiled Eve through his subtlety. It's the subtlety. It's not the wide open, glaring, Temptation that gets us, it's the subtlety. Things you weren't even realizing were going on. That's the serpent. Paul speaks in Ephesians 6 of the wiles, the tricks, the deceits of the devil. Now, while the Word of God nowhere indicates that he has the ability to read our hearts, or read our minds, yet he carefully observes our behavior, he watches our weak spots, and then he custom fits a snare to entrap us that was just, just, just made for us. It's always the same allurements to sin. It's always the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Always that, somewhere, somehow that way, but my, he's got a lot of tricks in his bags, and he comes to us with these same temptations, the same three, in a thousand different ways. No door can shut him out. No degree of holiness can place you beyond his reach. There's a hymn that has a line in it, a part of a line about in the place where sin does not molest there at the heart of God. It's not true. Not true. Tell me you haven't been on your knees in the place of prayer, sensing such nearness to God's heart, and the devil has come in. He's got your heart, your mind somewhere else. Some is Something is thought, and now you find you're your away. I was distracted. No place. Not your prayer closet. Not the house of God. He's always there to deceive. 
He also has power to destroy. Again, verse 3, that red dragon, red. Why red? Well, red, red, of course, in Scripture is the color of blood. Red was the color of the horse in Revelation chapter 6, where the rider takes peace from the earth, who carried this, this great sword of execution and who filled the world with bloodshed, with slaughter, persecution, blood. Red is the color of the garment of the apparel of the Almighty King when he puts on his strength, says Revelation 19, a vesture dipped in blood to crush out his enemies. Therefore, we find that the color red speaks of bloody deaths, persecution, flaming wrath. And so the devil is described as a red dragon because he is everywhere portrayed as one who is cruel, who is bloodthirsty, who is always intent on the destruction of the church and of the glory of God. He's always intent. He is bloodthirsty. Christ stated that he was a murderer from the beginning. I don't know if you've ever seen some of those interviews of murderers. They talk about, I'm talking about serial killers. They actually find tremendous pleasure in watching the death take place over and over again. They go back to the corpse. And it's a high for them. Where does that come from? It's not just a crazy mind. It's satanically inspired. He's a murderer. The murderer. He's the destroyer both of souls and bodies. All those fiery passions that arise in men and break out in deeds of violence and blood, they're his inspirations. Never could a truer character description be given of Satan than a bloodthirsty monster. So he's strong. That's who we're facing. He's also a slanderous adversary. Not just a strong one, but slanderous. Verse 9, the devil. The Greek word is diabolos. You know that. Diabolical, we get our word diabolical from that, diabolos. And it means slanderer or false accuser. You compare that with verse 10, where a loud voice from heaven declares that the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The dragon, the serpent, he's strong, but he's also slanderous. And he wreaks havoc amongst the people of God by the accusations he brings against them, constantly accusing them, slandering them in order to harm them. There's an interesting translation of this word, of the Greek word in Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Ladies, don't take, don't take umbrage at what I'm about to tell you. I'm just telling you here's the translation, but here's the real Greek word here. Right? I'm not subtly sending any messages to you, just pointing something out here to underscore my point. 
Titus 2.3. Paul tells Titus that the older women in the church were to conduct themselves in a way that becometh godliness and not to be false accusers. Guess what that word false accusers is? Diabolos. Devils. Diabolical. Bringing false accusations. Don't be devils. False accusers. So bound up with this description of our enemy, our adversary, by this word translated devil, is the idea of malicious gossip, malicious gossip, spreading false accusations, false rumors, all with a point to destroy, to harm, and is forbidden. We discover that the devil seeks to oppose the people of God by bringing slanderous accusations against them based upon the law of God. I want you to get the picture of the kind of enemy that we're facing. He, he, he tempts the believer to sin. Some lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, pride of life. He tempts him to sin and then brings these railing accusations against him for the very sin he tempted him to do. But the real power of a slander lies not so much in the fact that we have sinned, but in the conclusions that Satan draws and seeks to convince us to believe based upon our failures and our sins. He loves, take this to heart, he loves to find fault with Christ's people. One thing that you and I do not want to be good at is fault finding. It's diabolical. Fault finding. looking for the faults, the flaws, the failures, as if there's nothing good to find, nothing worthy of praise, nothing that you could encourage, but always finding fault. That's what the devil does, finds fault. And there's no shortage of things to find fault with, with anybody. Live with me for a day and you'll find plenty of faults, as I would with you. That's what the devil does. He appeared before God one day, and in Jehovah's face, he accused Job of being a hypocrite. And serving God simply because of the good life he had given him. He's bringing slanderous accusations to God about Job. In Zechariah 3, I'll, I'll touch again upon this in a moment, we, we find in one of Zechariah's visions that Joshua, the high priest, is standing before God. 
And it says at his right hand, it's Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. This is the high priest. He's standing before God, and there at his elbow, Satan is there to oppose Joshua, God's child, his high priest, resisting. He was there to accuse Joshua before God of his many sins and many corruptions that he thought surely God knew about. How can he be the high priest of the people? He lives like this. He does the same thing with you and me. If he's not accusing us to God, then he certainly whispers his accusations in our ears. And you might not even realize it. It's the devil doing it. You might think it's originated with you, but it's not. It's the devil. Or one of his angels. Now, he's very... He's very able to to charge us with crimes against God because we have them. We sin as our shorter catechism instructs us. We sin every day, every day, every day in word and thought and deed. So he has a panoply of options for him to bring about these accusations. And in this courtroom, he argues that based upon the charges that he's bringing against us, that God is against us and that he will not accept us. And fact is, we don't really belong to God. It's an empty profession. We're not really his children. Y'all, we say that in the South, y'all. Y'all read Pilgrim's Progress? It's a great book. Remember the scene when Apollyon comes and attacks Christian? And he's trying to get Christian to forsake Christ the Prince and to come back to serving him. Christian replies that he would rather have Christ's service and rather have Christ's company and rather have Christ's wages than have his. Now, Apollyon didn't appreciate that. Apollyon then begins to accuse him of being unfaithful in his service to Christ and therefore should not expect to get any wages from him. And Christian is blown away, modern-day vernacular. He is shocked by this accusation. Why do you mean I haven't been faithful to my prince? Well... Apollyon begins to bring out the accusations. You fainted when you first started out and fell into that slough of despond, remember? And you attempted wrong means to get that burden off your back instead of waiting for your prince to take it off, remember? You fell asleep on that hill difficulty. And you lost some things that were very precious. Remember? And you were almost persuaded, you were almost persuaded to go back when you came to that site of the lions at the gate. 
And really, and this had to have been the clincher, what you're really after, Christian, is vain glory. You are in it for yourself. I tell you, the devil has not changed his tactics. Our enemy is a great slanderer, an awful, awful accuser of God's people. He knows how to rehearse your sins like a broken record. It's clear from Scripture that the devil does not want to see Christ's people happy, hopeful, peaceful, holy, enjoying the Lord, succeeding in the Christian life. He doesn't want to see them living an abundant life. He doesn't want to see them praying because he trembles when he sees, as Cowper said, the weakest saint upon his knees. He doesn't want to see you speaking to anyone else about the Lord Jesus Christ. He would kill all evangelism if he could. He wants that Bible in your home kept closed. He wants closed. He wants you to be as busy as you can about things that aren't really needful. He keeps from your mind that old saying, there's only two items on the shelf, choosing God or choosing self. Does not want you to see that. No, he'd rather see all of mankind cast into the lake of fire. Such is his inveterate hatred for his creator. He believes that what we deserve is judgment. What we deserve is damnation. And he seeks to convince both God and God's people that they should be condemned to hell. Job, slandered before God and attacked by suggesting that the real reason he was living so uprightly was because God had been good to him, not not because... He did it out of love to the Lord. He questioned his motives for why he was living the kind of life that he was living. Again, that the high priest Joshua in Zechariah 3, standing before the Lord, it says he was clothed, Joshua, in filthy garments. And there's the devil. Look at those filthy garments. He has no right to be the high priest. Filthy. Resisting him.
That's exactly what the devil does to this very day. He harps. He harps on our many sins and failures. He's a great slanderer. My third and final thought. He's strong, he's slanderous, and he's subtle. That old serpent. The subtlety of the serpent. I I want just to briefly list, you can think about them later on, talk about them, be good. Several ways in which Satan uses this subtlety to bring the child of God into a state of discouragement and dismay and despondency and hopelessness and defeat and resign that this is how it's going to be. I'll never know anything better. First, he causes Christ's people to remember their sins more than they do their Savior. Even to the extent of neglecting Christ their Savior. You remember your sins more than you do your Savior. You remember your unrighteousness more than you do the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He gets you to focus so subtly to focus your life upon all that's wrong with you and not anything that's right with you. Your eyes are so fixed upon your disease, but you can't see the remedy, even when it's staring you in the face. The mind is taken up with the bad things in your life, and not all the good things that you have in Christ. That's what you think about most, that's what you talk about most. It's a sure path to discouragement. He causes believers, secondly, to draw wrong conclusions from God's frowning providences, to borrow a phrase from Cowper. He causes believers, through his subtlety, to draw wrong conclusions about God's frowning providences. I think I mentioned when I was here last that the death of Kim was a frowning providence. And the devil did not miss the chance to tell me God's punishing you for your many sins. I heard that over and over again and had to battle it. He wanted my eyes upon a God who's frowning, who's against me, who's punishing me. If God loved you, Satan says, he wouldn't deal with you like this. Oh, you've prayed and you've prayed for something, but God's own hand seems to be against the very thing that you're praying for. The thing that you're longing for. He's against you. He's not for you. Thirdly, he tells us continually that we are counterfeits, that the graces we think we have are not genuine. 
that's what he did with Job. That's what his friends, they were, they was, that's, that was, the devil was behind all that. All this, people you're so respected, the people stood up when you came into the room and all that. Oh, you are a phony. It's counterfeit. You weren't genuine, Job. So the accuser comes and tells us on a regular basis that the faith we think we have is it's just a figment of our imagination. We're not real believers. We don't really believe. If we really believed, then X, Y, Z would be true. If you really believed. If you had genuine faith, then you wouldn't act like this, and you wouldn't think this. Our repentance is phony. And you know what he does? Because you keep repenting over the same sins. You fake. If you were really repentant, you'd never do it again. You ever heard that accusation? How many times have you gone to God with the same sins and said, please forgive me, Lord? The zeal that we think we have, he says, ah, that's just human passion. It's not a real desire for God. You don't really desire the Lord. If you did, then X, Y, Z. You're just a hypocrite. Fourth, he is keen to remind us of our frequent, this plays on from the other point, of our frequent relapses into some sin or sins that we've already repented of and prayed against. So the serpent comes in his subtlety and he hisses in our ears, you've already about this. You, you, you've already asked God to forgive you. You've already repented of it. You said, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. But, but, even though you've shed tears over it, you've cried and you wept your heart out. You've told the Lord. You told him you didn't want to grieve him. You want to please him. And there you go again. I will freely confess it's a very sad and tragic thing for a believer after he has received mercy from God, from some sin, from some fall, and after God has forgiven him and wiped away all the tears from his eyes and picked him up and put him back on the road again. It's a tragic thing for that restored believer to return to the same folly and sin. That does a lot of damage to the soul. And the devil makes great use of this to make you feel like giving up altogether. I only speak from experience. But our text says, does it not? They overcame him. The accuser, the slanderer, the liar, 
the dragon, the serpent. They overcame him. He did not overcome them. How that takes place will be our topic next Lord's Day morning. Just know your enemy. Be aware of how he operates if you want to resist him as he seeks to resist you. The Lord write this word on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer and seek the Lord together. Eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for the time we've had in thy word, sobering as it is. We've all heard that wicked voice, those wicked whispers of the devil. But more importantly, Lord, thou hast heard them. They've not gone unnoticed to thee. And we thank thee that as Peter, the devil wanted to sift him like wheat to prove that he was chaff. Christ said, but I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. We thank thee, Lord Jesus, as our high priest, thou art continually interceding for us and praying for us that our faith would not fail. But all equip us more, we pray. Teach us more of how to do battle with this spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Now come, O God, we pray, and meet with us around the table. Make it a blessed time. Draw near, O Savior, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.